All right, all right, man. Welcome to C12. You guys doing all right tonight? Hey, it's uh, great to be back with you. It's been a powerful night so far, and I'm excited to uh, be preaching week three of this series called Love on the Brain. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, so I'm going to go ahead and jump in. We've uh, essentially been gathering around this idea of, uh, or, or we've gathered around the topic of dating and relationships, and really around the idea of uh, the process by which you date is just as important as the person that you date. In fact, we could say this, that the uh, process by which you date will determine the person that you date. So if you will put more focus on the how that you date, uh, I can guarantee you that the who that you end up dating will actually uh, be a right fit. So focus on the how and the who will fit in. So we've been talking about dating and all these different things. We've been talking about the two paths of dating. If you remember, we talked about the path of promiscuity and the path of purity. And we're going to put it on the screen, just kind of a walkthrough. But we've been walking through and comparing and contrast these ideas of the path of purity and the path of promiscuity. And essentially, the first thing that we talked through is, uh, is, is the relationship or the tension between commitment and intimacy. And in the path of promiscuity, uh, intimacy always grows larger than the commitment. So that's kind of your first thing you need to know about that is intimacy always grows larger than the commitment. And in the path of purity, really your battle and the largest battle you face in dating is keeping your intimacy smaller than the commitment. So you want to let commitment lead the way and let intimacy grow inside of commitment. So we talked through that and then we got even deeper into kind of the first idea or the first uh, the foundation of these paths, and that is uh, desperation was the first one. If you remember, if you operate if, on a foundation of desperation, then essentially you're going into it with a mindset of I lack something and I need someone to fulfill it, or I am empty and I'm looking for someone to fill my emptiness, as opposed to the path of purity, which is based out of a dependence on God to fill my emptiness, a dependence on God to fill what I lack, and then ultimately even a dependence on God to provide the right person for me in his timing. And so that's kind of your foundation. And then last week we even talked about the next one. You remember the next one? Did you put it up there, Allison? There we go. The next one, infatuation. We talked about how desperation then leads to infatuation. And infatuation is just kind of this like... Um, Oh, I just, this person's so great, and I'm, I'm just so amazed by them. And, and you just uh, do that through life. I don't know what that is. Like, what do you call that when you just, anyone know? Okay. So it's just kind of this whimsical idea of, oh, this person's, and you begin to give godlike qualities to someone that doesn't deserve them. You're just infatuated rather than on the other side being interested. And when you're interested, you ask the right questions about someone. And that's a much better path to take if you will ask the right questions. And so tonight, we're going to talk about the next two, the next two, which are uh, isolation and consumption. Isolation and consumption. Before we get into that, though, I want to, I want to just tell you two things real fast, okay? Uh, tonight, we've got a lot to talk through, and I'm going to be fairly aggressive tonight. Is that okay? You guys okay with that? Um, oh, wonderful. Uh, I'm going to be fairly aggressive, and... and um, I'm just going to speak truth, and here's why. I want you to know the why behind it. Um, it's not out of, like, some domineering thing that I have. I just love to be aggressive and tell you what to do and all this kind of stuff. That's really not my motive. My motive, honestly, is that I care a lot about you, and um, I really believe that God desires for you to operate your relationship world in a certain way. And I just, I've been where you're at, and I know kind of the, the things that we face in relationships and the dating world and how construed it can be and how easy it is to fall into a different path and all this kind of stuff. So I genuinely care about you, and so I'm going to speak really truthfully to you. Second thing is this. Um, your knee-jerk reaction to some of the things I say tonight, maybe that's crap. Maybe that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And uh, quite honestly, I'm okay with that. I'm not intimidated by you disagreeing with me. Uh, what I would ask of you is that you at least just think about it and take it home and even further pray about it. And I would ask of you to, to ask yourself, is the reason why I think what he's saying crap simply because uh, my current situation or what I'm, how I'm currently operating in relationships does not match up with that? Or maybe I've just been so inundated by culture and that's so different than what culture says that that sounds like crap. 
If you can just agree to say, I'll, I'll, I'll do that, um, then I think we're starting from a great foundation, all right? Are you ready? Wonderful. Um, who says wonderful? What a weird thing to say. So I want to begin by uh, discussing culture and just talking about kind of where we've come from and the kind of culture that you live in. And honestly, you don't need me to tell you this, but it may be a good reflection on the past and where we've come from now sitting here in 2017. So first, I'm going to put this chart up here, and it may be too much for you to take notes, so just follow along. Everyone's like, I just came from school, Austin. Chill out. Just follow along with me. You don't have to take notes. But I want to just walk through um, an idea of, of where we've come from as a culture and as a society and how we're living. So first, back in the 1950s, and before, some of the ways that we operated and, and some of the things that existed in that time were this. Let's just read them off talk about them, okay? Number one is oral sex was illegal back then. Illegal, literally illegal. Then premarital sex was illegal back then. A girl who had premarital sex was unmarriable. That's what was considered about a girl who did that. Uh, people didn't talk about sex before then. Uh, TV couples, can you believe this? TV couples slept in different beds. And it was all because of this idea that sex was not talked about. It was kind of avoided. We didn't go there. It wasn't something that was mentioned. If we just avoid it, it'll protect us from all these kind of things. But what we got instead was some real clarity. I mean, the belief was that all sex is bad is what we kind of operate. All sex is bad. But as a result, what we had was massive clarity. I mean, everyone knew this is what was wrong, this is what was right, and everyone kind of operated on the same. Now, of course, there were some that, that went a different route and that kind of thing, and if they did, it was shameful, and it was really discouraged. But there was massive clarity. And then we get into the 1950s, uh, really in, into the beginning of the 1980s. We had, in 1948, there was a book published called Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, where the author uh, essentially did a study and uh, when he produced the book, it was these, these things that people had never heard about, and it just unleashed these ideas about sexuality that no one was talking about. Things like uh, 10% of males are homosexuals. And back then in 1948, everybody was like, oh, what? Oh, my goodness, this is wild. And it just began to shift people's mindset and how they thought about sexuality. Now, in a couple, years, a couple years from then, it was exposed that his sample study was a group of prison mates. And so that's, uh, that was how he came to this conclusion. And so really all of his studies was eradicated and it wasn't even, uh, it's, it's not believed anymore. But then you had the 1953 was the first Playboy. In 1960 was first oral contraceptives began to be used. It was okay to use birth control. Uh, removal of prayer and Bible in the public school. There's a deconstruction of traditional perspectives and values. And the uh, kind of the norm belief was free love, right? This was the 60s. It was the hippies, right? Coachella. We're all just, yay, of free love, everyone. It's just great. We just have free love. So what we got, it was a lot of questions. Everyone's going, wait, but this is not how we operated a couple decades ago. This is not how we operated a couple years ago. And so it just ushered in this new way of thinking. And then now, you guys don't need a chart to kind of know what's uh, present, but in 1980 to present, uh, premarital sex is now the norm. Cohabitation, people living together before they're married is pretty normal. Hooking up is an idea, obviously, and it is pretty normal. Teen pregnancy skyrocketed. Divorce rates skyrocketed. Homosexuality rises. Internet takes hardcore porn into every single home. These are the kinds of things that, are happening in our culture today. And now the belief is that all sex is good. All sex is good. Who am I to tell you how you choose your sexuality and what kind of sexual decisions you want to make? And as a result, we've experienced massive chaos. Now, whether you agree with the current condition of our culture being super chaotic or not, I think we can at least all agree that we live in a sexually obsessed culture. Can we agree on that? That you, uh, you don't need a chart, you, you don't need me to tell you that we live in a very uh, sexually based, craving type of culture. It doesn't take long to figure that out. Um, uh, perhaps it's because I'm a, I'm a pastor, and so many, many of the conversations that I have with young people consist of people who are walking through great pain and hurt because of sexual mistakes. Or maybe, or maybe a sexual decision that was made to them. And so um, I have lots of those conversations. Perhaps that's why I'm, I'm real passionate about it. But I, I also I've experienced 
the result of some people that I've met and some friends in my life. I've experienced the result of sexual obsession. I remember a girl um, not too long ago that I had a conversation with that um, was about my age, but in high school she was introduced to pornography. And pornography opened up kind of her mind to all these different sexual experiences and, and a different belief about sex and opened up her experience with sex. And she began to kind of experiment with it. And that's how she went into college and even out of college until eventually she found a man that she wanted to marry that she felt like you know, her heart was linked to his heart and their future was going to be together except for the fact that she could not get over her pornography addiction and she could not get over the things that she had already done with multiple other people. And as a result, she could not thrive in this relationship with the person that she wanted to spend her life with. It's heartbreaking. I had a friend, um, a personal friend, very recently, a guy that I went to, to college with. In fact, uh, we did ministry together in college, ministry. We talked to people about Jesus together, me and this guy. And um, he graduated from college, got a great job, and moved on with life. And he was a great guy. And he, like many of you, dated multiple people, just trying to find the right one and all this kind of stuff. And, and it never worked out with anybody. And um, I just always ask, I don't know why. This guy's a great catch, you know. And then very recently, he's been in a relationship with a young lady, and uh, she found out that he, for the past year, has been going uh, behind her back and lying to her and uh, finding people online and specifically finding married couples online and, uh, and basically having sex with them and all behind her back and they were about to get married and all this kind of stuff and this was revealed. And this is a, a, a good friend of mine and I've experienced the pain that he is now walking through of a sexual obsession an addiction that he can't get free from. I'm telling you, if you have an experience personally, it's a real thing, and it can ruin a life. It can wreck someone's life. And so part of our conversation tonight, man, I'm, I'm begging with you, and I'm praying that you'll understand the uh, gravity and the weight of what we're talking through. Unfortunately, along the way in our culture of sexual obsession, and then in a culture of dating, we've not only lost kind of the meaning of that, and we've been confused by all that, but we've lost the meaning of love. We've lost the meaning of love and what that means as well. So I want to take a few minutes and just talk to you about love. Can we do that? Um, I want to take a few and just talk to you about love and hopefully give you a perspective on love um, Maybe you've never had it before. In the scriptures, in Bible, there are, are three different words for love in the New Testament in the Greek language. One of them is the word agape. And it's the word used to describe the love that Jesus has for his children, for us. And it's a word that really is full of commitment and, and, um, and a covenant between him and us. And then it's also the word used to describe the relationship between a man and a woman in a husband and wife relationship. Now, I want to read to you kind of a definition of agape love. And um, I want you just to think, is this something that I want? Is this something that I want to experience? Let me just read. Agape is called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the object loved. It is a love of esteem of evaluation. It has the idea of prizing. It is the noblest word of love in the Greek language. Agape is not kindled by the merit or worth of its object, but it originates in its own God-given nature because God is love. Agape delights in giving. This love keeps on loving. Listen to this. This love keeps on loving when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, and unworthy. It's an unconditional love. Agape desires only the good of the one loved. It's a consuming passion for the well-being of others. Anybody want that? Agape love is based out of a commitment. So here's what we know. This love is based in commitment, not emotion. It's based in what? Not in, it's in commitment. 
not emotion. Number two, what we know is this kind of love is permanent, not temporary. It's what? Not. So what we have here is a love that is a permanent commitment. A permanent commitment. So let me ask you a question. I'll give you a scenario. If your boy, can we have some fun? Can we have some fun tonight? Okay. If your boyfriend or girlfriend, or let's say the person you want to be a boyfriend or girlfriend with, holla at the single people in the room. Um, (laughs) If your boyfriend or girlfriend, you guys love each other, you have all of these emotions about each other, it's, uh, you know, just so beautiful. (laughs) And you just feel all of this affection for that person, and you feel like they respond to it back to you, and it's such a great thing, and you love each other. Okay, if that's your situation, and then you find out that your boyfriend or girlfriend is, um, let's say, sleeping with their ex, okay? Sleeping with their ex. Would you, would you at least question their love for you? You would, right? You would question where they... You would question their love for you completely, right? Why? Because you realize that love is not, I mean, you know this. Love is not just an emotion. Love is based out of their commitment. So just because they said they had these great feelings and butterflies about you doesn't really mean crap if they're not committed to you, correct? So you understand that love is a commitment. The problem is we talk about love in today's culture and society like it's something that we just fall into. Like, like I'm just walking through life and it's, oh, I fell. Like, like love just happened to me. Like I'm just walking along the path of life and love happens to me. And it's, oh, man, I got so lucky. Love just happened to me, not to my friend, to me, right? We talk about love like we fall into it and out of it. But what we just said is that love is not an emotion. Love is a commitment. So it's actually love is a choice that you make. So let me read to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a famous scripture. You hear it at every single wedding. But let me just read it to you so that you know, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Now, so much to talk about in that that we're not going to cover. But here's essentially the basic question that I want to ask you. Are these things like patience and kindness, are those emotions that you just experience Or are they choices you make about how you treat somebody? They're choices that you make. I commit to being this toward that person because I love them. The love I have for them draws me to commit to being patient even when they're not worthy of me being patient too. It's not a feeling that you have. Love is a commitment that you make. So I'm committed to being kind even when I don't want to be kind. That's the essence of the love. Listen, this is so important that you get this. Agape love and low commitment don't match. Now I'm going to step on some toes here, and I'm okay with that. Agape love and low commitment don't match. You can't make a commitment to someone in a dating relationship. We've talked about this for the past two weeks. What is your commitment level in a dating relationship? Very, very, very low. It's I choose you for now. I choose you for now. I don't know about tomorrow. And that's okay. That's okay in a dating, that's how it should be. But agape love and low commitment don't go together. And and we just read it together and you told me together in our example that love is a commitment, not a feeling. So, Um, Let me get super practical with you, okay? When you say I love you to a boyfriend or girlfriend, you are misusing the word love. I understand it's countercultural. I understand it doesn't seem natural. But you are misusing the word love because there is not commitment in your relationship yet. So, You are allowing your intimacy to go deeper than your commitment level. 
And so what I would say is that if someone says, I love you, the next words better be, I do. Because it is a commitment that defines love. You are developing. Listen, when you say I love you to a boyfriend or girlfriend, I understand. But when you do that, you're developing an adult-like intimacy with childlike commitment. You are developing an adult-like intimacy with childlike commitment. And I understand you can have affection and you can have chemistry and you can have strong feelings and you can even have a dating commitment to that person. But what we just defined as love and what the Bible defines as love, that kind of agape love. There are brotherly loves. So if you want to say to your boyfriend or girlfriend, I love you, pal. If that's the kind of love you're looking for, yeah, go for it. I love you guys. But not in a romantic type of way. So, John 14, 21, we read it the first week, says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. God's intimacy towards you follows your commitment to him. There has to be commitment in order for there to be intimacy. Love for God, listen, love for God is not a feeling that makes you raise your hands in worship. It's a commitment to obey him when no one else is watching. So your same love for God is reflected, the same commitment you have toward the person that you say, I love you to. It's not an emotion that you have. It's a commitment that you have. So (laughs) here's how I would encourage you. Reserve love for marriage. Make it sacred. And and if you're in a relationship, uh, if you get in a relationship, I would just say from the get-go, hey, just so you know, I reserve that word uh, for marriage Um, because I just, the way I believe about that word and all that it uh, means in scriptures, that's that's where I'm going. Um, So let's jump in. (laughs) That's the beginning. Here we go. I want to talk about isolation and invitation. Isolation and invitation. I think the majority of us understand what isolation is, but... um, Sometimes detecting that it's gone too far is the hard part. Most people view dating like this. Uh, I find someone that I'm interested in, and in order for me to know if I should spend the rest of my life with them, then I must get some alone time with them and isolate myself with them. And I would just say, yeah, I get it. You want to have alone time with them, and that's, that's healthy. But set some boundaries as to how that works. Uh, the problem is this. Intimacy grows in isolation. We write that down. Intimacy grows in isolation. Isolation is the greenhouse for intimacy. So when you isolate yourself, you and your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, uh, when you isolate yourself away from other people, away from community, you're allowing intimacy to grow. Um, so I, I think the... Most people ask the question, so you're saying that I can't spend one-on-one time with someone. No, I'm not saying that. You spend one-on-one time with someone, but be smart about it. And if I were to give you just some practical advice, uh, man, choose, choose your time wisely. We go on a date on a Friday night. We go on dates on a Monday and Friday night. We talk on the phone, this. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're going to isolate yourself with someone. And in isolation, intimacy often grows. We see it all the time. Uh, Oftentimes, people isolate themselves with someone because they hate the world that they currently have. They hate the life that they currently have. So they'll just isolate themselves with someone to build a better life. So instead of inviting someone into my miserable life, I just isolate myself with someone to build another life. Or the very community that I grew up in that made me who I am, maybe C12, or I don't know who it is, uh, the very people that built me into who I am and encouraged me to be a follower of Christ, then I isolate myself away from that to get along with someone so they don't have to know what's going on in my relationship. And so it's isolation that's very, very dangerous. And I see it all the time in church. You know, the guy that's leading a small group and he's awesome, and all of a sudden he's like, where the heck did Johnny go? Oh, he got a girlfriend. Sweet. See you, Johnny. And they just isolate themselves all by themselves. Um, Let me give you a few thoughts on isolation. (laughs) Turn to your neighbor and say, get ready. (laughs) Um, 
when, when you're dating someone, it's special when you're with them. When you're married, you're always with them. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not special. I'm just saying you're always with them, right? Like I leave my house in the morning. From, I leave my wife, go to work for a few hours. I come home, and I'm with my wife. We go on vacation together. We go to the park together. We do dinner together. The rest of our life, we do together. I'm always with her because we're a married couple. That's what we do. How you know that you're dating is if when you see someone, it's still special. So if you see them every day as just a part of your normal routine, I see them before class, then we have lunch together, then I study with them after class, and then we hang out after class, and then we hang out before church, and then we, we uh, go to the bathroom together during church, and then we... Uh, <laughs> That was dramatic. But then we hang out after church, and then we do this. And then, listen, if they're just becoming part of your everyday routine and you are doing life with them, you are developing a marriage like intimacy and a childlike commitment. You're dating. Listen, listen, listen. Dating means you go on dates, it's in the word, right? Dating, dates in dating. So schedule dates and get to know someone on a date. But I would just encourage you to at least monitor that you're not doing life with this person because that's what married people do. And when you get to a marriage-level intimacy, other things begin to arise from that level of intimacy. I have a friend, um, uh, I hope he doesn't listen to this. Uh, um, he doesn't go to this church. But anyways, I have a friend that I grew up with, went to college with, that kind of thing. And recently uh, he got married. But um, we would hang out with him before they got married, him and his wife now. And they were really, really close, like did everything together. And I know he was living at her house. He said he wasn't, but I know that dude was. He was lying to me. Uh, he was living at her house. And um, he Never mind. Anyways, they were living together, and they just did everything together. I mean, they were, they, I remember leaving, hanging out with them, and my wife and I going, they, they feel like a married couple to us. Like, yeah, yeah, they do. Then recently, dude gets married, they get married, and uh, I, we go and visit them. I'm like, bro, marriage. How's it going, man? Do you love it? What's going on? He's like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the same thing, but I mean, it's cool. I guess we get to have sex, but like pretty much the same thing. I was like, Really? So how about the Falcons? Like, I, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> like, that's so depressing. So you just made a lifelong commitment to someone, and it's the exact same as what you've experienced the past year of your life? It's, it's, and so I would just encourage you, man, like, let dating be dating. And, and monitor your level of intimacy in the time that you spend with one another. The opposite of isolation is inviting. Invite them into your world. Man, this is... This is, these are my friends. Come hang out with my friends. Go hang out with his friends. This is my church. Be a part of my community. Be a part of what I do. Be a part of this and that. Invite them into it. Don't isolate yourself away from everybody else. Make sense? <laughs> All right, next, consume. Consume is what happens after you isolate. After you've isolated yourself, the next thing you do is consume each other. If isolation is... Uh, if desperation, if desperation is, um, I'm in lack of something and I'm looking for someone to fill it, and then the next one, what was the next one after desperation? Infatuation. If infatuation is, I give them godlike qualities, and then isolation is, I begin to get alone with them so that I can worship them. Then consuming is that now that I am alone with them, I offer up my life on the altar of this relationship and it consumes everything about me. And you consume each other physically, emotionally, spiritually, everything. You consume each other. What do you do when you get isolated? Play checkers? No. Nobody's playing checkers. What do you do? You consume each other is what you do. What do you do? Spoon? God, listen. Girls, girls, listen. Uh, I'm telling you, I'm going to come at you tonight. Spooning, uh, no guy wants to spoon as like a cuddling method. That's not cuddling to a guy. There's other stuff going on there, okay? Just so you know, that's a joke. Um, 
Okay, anyways, what do you do when you get alone? You consume. You consume each other. You consume each other emotionally, physically. And out of a desperate, sick attempt to get your own needs met, you drain each other. Listen, inwardly, inwardly, you drain each other inwardly. Inwardly, you're emotionally, this is how you know you're consumed. You're emotionally exhausted. You're physically worn out. Your relationship with God is anemic, dry, getting worse. Outwardly, your grades diminish, your work diminishes, health diminishes, relationships diminish. Everything in life gets worse because everything is being sacrificed on the altar of their relationship. That's a key indicator of a sick relationship. Can I just ask you something? Why would you connect your life to someone who is ruining it? If everything in your life is getting worse because of someone, are you really wanting to connect your life forever to that person? Don't you know that there's someone out there who could make your life better? There is someone that would make your life better. And you are going to connect your life with someone who is making it worse. I just want to encourage you to look at if you're being consumed by someone, inwardly, outwardly. Are things in your life, other things in your life getting worse because of the person you've decided to date? The other side is contribute. Instead of consuming, we contribute to each other's life. So this life gets better because we're in it. Family gets better. Grades get better. My walk with Jesus gets better. Things get better because we contribute to one another's life. Okay, now I'm going to get into, um, listen, if you're in a relationship, isolation and consumption is usually where things go south. Things go south with isolation and consumption. And unfortunately, consumption is often where physical intimacy begins to overtake commitment. This is where many people lose their battle with purity. So we've said in previous weeks that purity is more than just actions. It's your mind. It's your heart. It's your emotions. But tonight I want to talk for the remainder of our time. Sorry to keep you so long, but this is really important. The remainder of our time, I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about physical intimacy. I want to talk about sex. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're going to talk about sex. <laughs> the thing. <laughs> what all you guys want to talk about. You just came to church going, man, I hope Austin talks about sex tonight. It's going to be awesome. Number one, would you write this down? I want to give you a few thoughts about sex, okay? I want to give you a few thoughts. Number one is this. View great sex as a result of a great marriage. View great sex as a result of a great marriage. Listen, God created sex. It was his idea. It's a beautiful thing. He wants you to enjoy it. But because he understands you better than you even understand yourself, he knows that intimacy is best experienced inside of commitment. It's best experienced inside of the commitment of a marriage. And when it is experimented with and when it is expressed Outside of the commitment of marriage between a man and a woman, it has catastrophic consequences. God loves sex. He created it. But he knows it has catastrophic consequences when it's experimented with and when it's expressed outside of how he has built it. Somehow, in our culture, it has become uh, kind of the common thing, and we've allowed ourselves to believe that Uh, casual hooking up in meaningless sex is somehow awesome. And I want you to know it's not. It's using each other to get off. It's not awesome. And I want you to know that you're not experiencing love at all with that. I'm telling you, that kind of sex is not better than what my wife and I have. Listen, what, the, what my wife and I experience is a result of years of marriage, of years of commitment. Listen, commitment in things that where things have gone south in our marriage, where we've experienced family heartache, we've experienced uh, sickness in our marriage, we've experienced a uh, hardship in our marriage, we've experienced fights and arguments, and we've experienced great joys, we've experienced, experienced the birth of our first son and all the things that came with that. So when... 
We get in bed together. We carry in all of that. And the intimacy that is experienced is a result of us going in all of that I am still committed to love you, to be kind to you, to be patient with you. And all of what 1 Corinthians 13 says, that's what we are experiencing. And I'm telling you, that's way better than whatever cheap version the world is offering you. Way better. And what culture is telling you is that you just experience a casual hookup is is not what I'm experiencing. It's mutual masturbation is what you're doing. And the intimacy that you are playing with is extremely dangerous. When you have sex outside of that commitment, it's not love. And the problem is, the problem is that we live in a culture that tells you that that's okay. You help me out, I help you out, we'll be good. Right? That's the culture that so many people live by. But go back, go back to the chart. You don't have to put it on the screen, but just think about the chart that I put on. Is it possible that the more free love we have experienced throughout the decades is the result of the chaos that we're actually experiencing? Listen, you don't need me to tell you this. We, now we are experiencing more family breakups, more divorce, more pain inside of relationships, more pain inside of marriage. Some of you right now, if I had all of you raise your hands for how many of you grew up or are experiencing right now a broken family life, I guarantee you'd be half of you. Is it not possible that the more free love that our culture gets is the reason why we're experiencing more pain and more chaos in relationships? Don't those two link together? Is it possible that maybe free love isn't actually free? That it will cost you more than you want to even think about? The free love that you're being sold is not actually free. If you want great sex, build a great marriage. Build a great marriage. Number two is this. Sexual desire is good. Lust is bad. (laughs) Good and bad are such elementary words, but I just wanted to keep it simple for you. You can have sexual desire without lust. It's possible. You're a sexual being. There's nothing wrong with that. God made you like that. Because you are a sexual being... You're going to look forward to sex. You're going to desire to have sex. You're going to be turned on sometimes sexually more than others. You're going to be tempted sexually. Nothing wrong with that. Sexual desire is not a curse. It's a blessing. And this is so important because I've seen how the churches have uh, just kind of the global church, not individual. Some churches have taught about sex in such a way where we, especially women, get a tainted, like, nasty, dirty view of sex so that even when they get married, they're not able to enjoy the intimacy that God wants them to enjoy because they had this idea that the church put into them that sex is bad. And it's not. It's a great thing. Sexual desire is good. But lust is excessive sexual desire. Lust is craving sexually what God has forbidden. Listen, you are lusting when you are intentionally imagining and fantasizing about things that are out of bounds. In a way, someone told me this and it made so much sense. In a way, lust is to sexuality what gluttony is to appetite. It's excessive. You have it, you're just using it excessively. You're pushing it to an unhealthy level. It's okay to notice an attractive person. It's lust to imagine them naked. It's okay to look forward to having sex. Not okay to imagine having sex outside of marriage. You see the difference? There's got to be a difference in your mind. One of the most helpful things that you can do before you are married is fight against lust. I had someone um, tell me this like a couple months before I got married, so... I guess two and a half years ago or whatever, um, someone told me this, and I was like, golly, that's good. He said, um, he said, getting married doesn't solve your lust issues. It just gives you someone to take it out on. Getting married doesn't solve your lust issues. 
so, fellas, if you're thinking that you can struggle with your lust thing now and give into it now and not fight against it now, but one day when you get married, it's all going to go away because now you have someone to experience that intimacy. Well, you're wrong. It's just going to give you someone to take out your lust on. And I guarantee you every woman in here is going, uh, I don't want that. Doesn't, it doesn't take it away. So perhaps one of the greatest things you can fight against now while you're single is your lust. I want to give you, um, I want to give you just a few things. I'm going I'm to fly through it. But I want to give you a few ways that you can starve lust because I think this is so helpful. A few ways that you can starve lust. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. And I'm gonna, we're going to put it on the screen, and I want to read it to you. That's what Jesus says. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, let me, let me uh, kind of explain what that means by giving you um, a couple things that you should write down. Number one is this. Lust is in the heart. This is what he means. Lust is in the heart. The problem is in the heart. He took it from the law and he made it a heart issue. If you even look at someone lustfully, you've committed. So what he did is made it the desire of your heart. That's the issue at hand. In past days, men have cut off body parts to prevent them from acting upon their lust. He's going, you don't have to do that. <laughs> Thank God. It's, a, it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. So cut off the things that turn your heart in that direction. Cut off the things that turn your heart in that direction. And I think it's, it's maybe obvious uh, to some, but even, even for women, I would tell you, if, if watching The Notebook causes you to fantasize and rom romanticize about a relationship that you could have with another guy and leads you into that, well then, dude, or girl, that's not, that's not an option for you. Don't watch The Notebook. Whatever it is that draws you to that, cut it off. Cut it off. If Snapchat draws you to that, then cut it off. It ain't worth it. It's in the heart. Number two, develop a militant discipline toward a zero-tolerance policy. Tolerate lust as much as you tolerate adultery. Don't tolerate it. Not acceptable. Fight against it. Can't do it. Develop a militant discipline toward a zero-tolerance policy. Number three, set your personal boundaries for a relationship. This is what I mean. If alone time gets you to a place that you know you don't want to go, then we ain't having alone time anymore. Can't do it. Not happening. We're not at a place where we can resist the lustful thoughts and the things that it leads us to. So alone time is not an option for us. And if they can't respect that boundary, then out the door, Kimosabi. What? Kimosabi. I don't know why I said that. Out the door. Better to be single than to be sick. Here's another one. If you can't say no to the relationship, say no in the relationship. I've, I reversed it. If you can't say no in the relationship... Say no to the relationship. If you can't say no in the relationship, say no to the relationship. Because it's better to be single than to be sick. Learn to control your appetites. I'll tell you um, just a little personal example. Uh, my wife and I, we dated, I told you last week, dated for years and years and years and went through long distance and all this kind of stuff. And then we got to the point we got engaged and we knew that being engaged was going to bring us to a different level of fighting temptation and all this kind of stuff. And I remember having a conversation with her saying, hey, here's, here's our boundaries and we had to set new ones and all this kind of thing because we really didn't want to fall. And I remember ha having a conversation with her and saying this. I said, babe, 
Um, if I can't say no to my appetite for you, what makes you think I can say no to another woman when we get married? Ladies, listen, if he can't say no to his appetite for you, this is a problem of an appetite. I can't, I can't say no to the feelings that are coming up inside of me. I can't say no to him. That's the problem here. If he can't say no to his appetite for you, what makes you think he's going to say no to another woman? What makes you think he can say no to those feelings when they arise and no one will know what happens and no one will know? So when you're looking for a, a guy or a girl, maybe one of the questions you ask is how do they control their appetites? Can they say no to the things that maybe they're feeling, but they have to push them down anyway? And then lastly, I would say this. Um, treat porn like you would heroin. Not once. Can't do it. Not possible. Won't do it. Won't do it. Most everybody knows heroin's an addictive drug. Sometimes it only takes one time for you to be addicted for the rest of your life. Very, very hard to come off of. Treat pornography like you would treat heroin. I want to read you something. Um, band, you guys can go ahead and come back up. i got to end this. But I want to read you something. Um, a professor from the University of Pennsylvania wrote this in a testimony for the U.S. Senate subcommittee in 2004. I want to read to you what he said. He said, Sexual pleasure is one of the most intense human experiences. Physically speaking, when a man or woman reaches sexual excitement, nerve endings release a sexual chemical into the brain called opium. Opium means opium-like and is a good description of the power of the chemical. Apart, listen, apart from a heroin-induced experience, nothing is more pleasurable than sex. This is a wonderful thing in a committed marriage relationship because it helps to bond two people together and to bring joy in living together in a committed relationship. There can be a downside to the pleasure of sex, however. If sexual experiences happen outside of a marriage and are constantly repeated, a sex act can move from being a simple pleasure to an addiction. Instead of being bonded with a person, you become bonded to the act itself. And if the sexual experiences are pornography, your body will instantly recall the images you viewed for lusting purposes. These images are stamped into your brain with the aid of hormones released with the aid of sexual arousal. Pornography is not a joke. And honestly, we could spend a whole week talking about pornography. Resist pornography like you would resist a drug that would ruin your life because it will. It will. Let me give one last statement. I'm so grateful for uh, organizations that are fighting to end sex trafficking across the world. Uh, right now, it, there's a big kind of stir right now called the End It Movement. We end and raise awareness of sex trafficking. There are more slaves right now in the world than there have ever been. And they're wrapped up in sex trafficking, 27 million. I'm so grateful for organizations that push that. And I would be grateful for your support of those. But let me give you a thought. Every time you look at pornography, you're supporting the sex trafficking industry. It's proven research. You're supporting it. At the least, you're supporting the devaluing and dehumanitizing a human being. But you're, you're supporting the sex industry and the trade of women and the giving of money of women for their sex acts and even men. You're supporting that. So let me say this. Do us all a favor and don't publicly raise your voice for awareness of sex trafficking if you're privately helping it thrive. Don't publicly raise your voice against it if you're privately helping it thrive. That's called a hypocrite. And possibly if you would spend your energy 
solving your private problem, then the public problem would be solved as well. So I'm all for it. I'm all for awareness and I'm all for these organizations. But I believe even in this room tonight, if we would go after the private issue at hand, then we would see a great breakthrough in the large public issue at hand. So I want to lead us um, just into a response moment. I know I've talked about a lot tonight and, and you've been sitting for a long time. We're going to have some fun in just a minute. But I believe that in here, God would want to deal with someone. And um, perhaps as you're listening, you've just been convicted of your own um, waywardness or your own things that you're dealing with in this topic of conversation. So I want to invite you to just however you feel led, if it's coming down to the front, uh, I want to invite you to two things. One is to repent. Um, to repent of your sin, to repent of the things that have happened in your life, the things that you are currently facing, the things where you are currently going against how God would call you to live. Man, before God can radically change your life, you have to come to a place of repenting of where you're wrong in your current life. And so I wanna just invite you to that. Maybe tonight you put your foot on the ground and say, tonight is the night that I repent of what I've done. And I say, God, I'm, I'm ready. And the next thing is this, I wanna invite you to make a commitment and to commit your eyes, your body, your hands, whatever you have, commit it to be used for the Lord. And what I mean by that is to be used how he has called you to use. To save those purity things, physically, emotionally, ever to save those for the one day that you're married. Maybe tonight, you I love the word consecrate. I, the definition of consecrate is this, to make or declare something as sacred. To consecrate yourself and go, God, I declare myself as sacred and my purity as sacred. And I'm gonna fight. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm saying I'm gonna be perfect. It means I'm gonna fight for this. From this day forward, I'm gonna fight. And so I'm just gonna invite you to respond how you feel led. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, it says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because there are, these are improper for God's holy people. And I was praying that over our group today, that this would be our prayer over each other, that there would be no hint of that in this group. But that starts with you individually. Before you can be receptive of his grace, you have to be repentive of your life. So I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. And, and the band's going to sing a little bit behind us. Um, I would ask you just to investigate your own heart, your own life. And, and maybe tonight has been convicting of you and your, and your personal decisions and things that you're currently acting upon. Is God calling you to repent of that? Would you, would you tonight repent of that and say, God, I commit, commit myself to you. I commit to follow you. I commit these things, I consecrate these things to you so that I can experience all that you have for me. Lord, you want good for us. I believe that tonight. This is not a you are withholding good by asking us to be pure. You want good for us. And Lord, what you are pointing us to is something so much better and so much greater. God, even as a, a married man, God, you're calling me to a life of purity because my marriage depends on it. My ministry depends on it. But each one of us, each one of us, you're calling that because you want us to have the abundant life, the abundant life. So in this moment, would you just take a few minutes and respond however God is leading you?
that's our prayer tonight. Lord, we want to be close to you. We want to experience all that you have for us. We want to know you at a deeper level. We want to experience you at a deeper level. And Lord, truthfully, when we go outside of the bounds, outside what you have drawn up for us, Lord, we're just trying to fill our heart with significance and value and worth, finding it in someone else. Oh God, but you have that for us. We can find all that in you. Father, I pray that even if it's not tonight, that you would so move in the hearts of these students. Or that even as they go home, that they would consider consecrating themselves, declaring themselves as sacred and holy, committed to you. Would that be their desire? Would that be their number one heart's desire? To love you, to love you. helpful and, and um, I'm sorry for keeping you so late. We're going to party out here, but um, I do want to invite you back next week. We're going to end up in this series next week at one more week and, and praying through what God wants me to do. And I think I may just kind of tackle some big questions around the relationship, uh, sex, dating, talk, and just some big things that I know are big in your world. And we'll see how that goes. Um, but I'm just kind of praying through that. But I, I promise you, next week you want to end this series right and end it on the good note. And then uh, we'll go into spring break strong and courageous for how God wants us to live. Um, you guys ready to party? Come on, will you stand to your feet? Will you find somebody around you, give them a high five? And say, I love you. Not the agape way, the brotherly way. I love you the brotherly way. The brotherly way. Give somebody a hug, a couple high fives. We'll see you next week.